So I was fascinated by a story this week that was on the news. And I wonder if any of you uh, saw this story either. Let me show you a picture and see if you recognize it. Anybody see this story this week? How many of you saw this story know what it is? All right. How many of you have no clue? It's just a house. All right. This is a house. We got to get y'all doing it news stuff. All right. I mean, the entire youth group doesn't know what this is. All right. This is a house just outside of Fort Worth, Texas, near Lake Whitney, Texas. In fact, that body of water you see is Lake Whitney, Texas, or is Lake Whitney there in Texas. And this couple bought this home in 2012. The Webb family bought this home in 2012 as their retirement home. They spent around seven hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars. It's valued somewhere in there to a million dollars. They had studies done. They had geological research conducted and everything was perfect. And suddenly the cliff started to fall away. Now, originally, it was not dangling over Lake Whitney like that. But as the cliff fell away, the house began to dangle. And you probably can't see it in this picture, but there's a crack. If you see the chimney, you see the chimney up there? There right beside the chimney, a crack developed all the way down the cliff's face. So they were offered three choices. The first choice was that they would bring in some really heavy-duty machinery, hook it to the house, and I can't think of a better phrase than the word Scooch. You know what that means, right? When you scooch up next to they were going to scooch the house away from the cliff. Now, that sounds great, but the problem was they were not going to save the house. They were just getting it where the debris wouldn't fall into Lake Whitney. The second option was just to let it hang out there until the rest of the cliff gave way. And the house just fall into Lake Whitney. The problem with that is lots of people want a house on the lake. Not a lot of people want a house in the lake, right? And particularly other people with houses around Lake Whitney did not like that option. And so the third option that they chose, and some of you may have seen this on the news. Some of you saw it. Tell me what they did with it. They burned it. They, they put hail. They put hail. That's another that's another burning, right? In a really southern church, all right? They put they put bay bay I cannot talk. Bales of hay. Y'all say that when that's hard. Bales of hay. Thank you for that support. All right. That had they had gas on them and other things, and they put it there and they burned the whole thing up, and then they're gonna remove all the debris. Now uh, the Webb family got contacted at their other home on Miami Beach. So, I mean, that made, you know, less than a little bit of the, you know, it's still a sad thing. But, you know, and they got asked about this and she said, we never thought it would come to this. And I'm sure at some point as they saw these pictures of their house dangling over the cliff of Lake Whitney, they had one of those head and hands moments when they were shaking their head thinking, how in the world did it come to this? How did we get here? Now, my guess is you don't have a house dangling over a cliff. 
<laughs> it's a good thing, right? But most of us at some point in our lives come to one of those head in your hands. How did I get to this moment times? How did we get here? You know, one of those moments when there are no good decisions, it's just the lesser of two evils. Well, one of those moments when there's no way out, it's just let's take my medicine and make it through. And you sit back and you wonder, how in the world did it ever come to this? Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about one of the periods of history that we know more about than just about any other period of ancient history. And we're going to see time after time that they come to that moment, that head in their hands moment and wonder, how did we get there? In fact, today we're going to look at the fourth king of Israel and how he came to that moment. But before we do that, let's do a little history. All right. Y'all look at me and say, we're ready for some history. All right. That wasn't very convincing, but here we go. All right. So here's the thing. For the first 500 years that Israel was a nation, they had no king. They were ruled by law. Now, that doesn't seem too crazy to us, but in their day and time, everybody had a king. Everybody had a sovereign and nobody was ruled by law. Moses comes down from the mountain. He's got the Ten Commandments plus the law of God. And he declares, this is how we're going to live. And for 500 years, this nation of Israel lives by the law with judges making sure everything's followed, with prophets calling them back to the Lord. But that's it. Now, to tell you how radical of an idea that is, it would be almost 3,000 years, or actually over 3,000 years, until another civilization would decide to live without a king and by the rules of law. Anybody want to guess where that is? Yeah, it's us, right? It's here. French Revolution, American Revolution, both had that as their kind of idea. And so you're talking about a radical idea. So for 500 years, they lived that way. Now, it didn't work perfectly, but it worked okay. It didn't always work best, but it worked kind of like here, right? After 500 years, though, they started noticing that all the other kingdoms around them had kings. Everybody's got a king. Everybody's got a king. Egypt's got a pharaoh. Everybody's got a king. And so they go to Samuel, who was the judge at the time, and they say, Samuel... We got to have a king. But why do you have to have a king? Anybody ever heard this before? Because everybody else has got a king. Jimmy down the street's got an Xbox. Bobby across the way's got an Xbox. We got to have an Xbox. Everybody's got an Xbox. Right? It's the same mentality. We got to have a king. Samuel goes, You don't want a king. Because if you get a king, he's going to act like a king. You don't want a king, yeah, but we really want a king. So God says, all right, give him a king. Samuel goes out and he chooses the kind of king that everybody choosing a king would choose. Tall, handsome, athletic, looks straight out of central casting from Disney. I mean, he was the guy. I mean, people looked at him and thought, man, that's our king. Look at him. Here's the problem. He looked good, but he was terrible as a king. Usually when you're a king, who becomes the next king? Your son, right? That's how it works. 
That's why everybody's so excited that we have babies born over in England because Prince George someday with no power will be king, right? But that didn't happen with the first king. By the way, what was the first king's name? Saul, right? You know that. First king is Saul. So he comes along and he's a terrible king and God says, I reject you as king. And instead of giving the kingship to his son, he gives it to his son's best friend who happened to be a shepherd, who happened to kill Goliath, who happened to be the one that people sang songs about. And who is that guy? David. So second in line was David, right? So you have Saul and then you have David. Now, David was a good king. David consolidated the 12 tribes of Israel into one nation. He brought a centralized location for worship. He brought a centralized location for the government. He brought all these people together. He began to do things that led people to say that this is a king and a kingdom we need to take notice of. He protected the borders. He instituted the right kind of worship. He, now, he wasn't perfect. I mean, he had the wandering eye problem. In fact, his wandering eye led to major family problems. And David saw the first civil war in the history of Israel during his reign. But he was still a good king. And by the end of his reign, God would describe him as a man after his own heart. Now, David had a son. Actually, David had several children. But he had one son who would take over after him. What was the third king of Israel? Solomon. Y'all are quick with that, all right? Solomon. Solomon was a guy that came into power. Solomon was overwhelmed with his responsibility. God had asked Solomon and said, what do you want? Anything in the world you can have? And Solomon said, I want Wisdom, And so Solomon becomes the wisest man around, which leads to being the richest man probably on the earth at that time, or at least in that area. People came to see him, came to see what was going on because they heard about this man named Solomon and they wanted to see his wealth and his power and his wisdom. And so they come and we even have descriptions in the Bible where they come and then they walk away and they're just astonished by what is happening with Solomon. Solomon, in fact, writes a book of wisdom, right? Or at least most of one. Called Proverbs. And so you have a pretty good line, right? You have Saul, who's a terrible king. But then you have David and Solomon. Solomon built the temple. Solomon built the palace. Solomon built things that were considered wonders of the ancient world. And then the fourth king, of course, was... Wait, wait, wait. Rehoboam. There we go. We got one. What happened to you? Yeah, you know, I called out Saul. Second one, David. Solomon. Rehoboam. It started all together before we... You're ruining the whole sermon now. We're going to break everything apart. All right. So we have Rehoboam, okay? Who was Solomon's son. And here's what I want you to know. We're going to get... We're going to walk through this. Rehoboam within five years, is out of place with his head in his hands asking the question, how did we get to here? Now, he had the legacy. I know it's Father's Day, and on Father's Day, we all put on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and everywhere else, my dad's the greatest, it's the best dad that's ever in the world. And the truth is, we could all sit here today and have arguments about my dad is better than your dad, my dad is bigger than your dad, you know, my dad, all that. 
But Rehoboam had a pretty good argument for his dad and granddad. His granddad was King David, the man about which movies are still being made today. His dad was King Solomon, who built some of the most amazing structures in the history of the ancient world. And in case he needed help remembering some of their things, he had his granddad's diary, which we call mostly Psalms. And his dad's diary, which we call Proverbs. In fact, most people think that Solomon specifically wrote most of Proverbs was written from Solomon to Rehoboam. That's a pretty good track record, right? And Rehoboam comes to the kingdom, comes into being king, and he's got all of that behind him and a bright future ahead. And within five years, it's gone. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Second Chronicles chapter 10. If you don't, it'll, most of it will be up on the screen. 2 Chronicles chapter 10, starting in verse 1, says, Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. Now listen, we're not talking about, you know, we make a big deal about inaugurations here, but we have to remember, this was the fourth king of Israel. This was still a huge deal. And there was David and Solomon. Let's go greet the one that's next. So they all go out to Shechem, for Israel had gone there to make him king. It goes on to say this. When Jeroboam, now here's Miss Joan was talking about, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this. He was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So here's what happened. Jeroboam had a prophet say about him that he was going to rule over ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, remember, David consolidated all twelve into one nation. It had been one nation under David, one nation under Solomon. And then Solomon has a prophet tell him that ten of them are going to go under the rule of Jeroboam. Well, Solomon didn't want that to happen. So he threatens Jeroboam and he says, listen... That's not going to happen. Rehoboam is going to be king over all. So Jeroboam, don't you wish that he could have named him something a little different there? Be helpful in not being confusing. Jeroboam goes to Egypt. Solomon dies. Jeroboam comes back. It goes on to say. So they sent for Jeroboam and he and all of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, so they get there, Rehoboam's about to be made king, he's being made king, and they say, we got a question for you. Here's their question. Your father, Solomon, put a heavy yoke on us. We built the temple, we built the palace, which was bigger than the temple, which you can talk about priorities there a little bit. We we built all these massive building projects, and we need a break. If you'll just lighten the labor... And the heavy yoke he put on us, we will serve you. Rehoboam responds, come back to me. Three days. I got to think about it. I I need some time. Three days. And so the people went away. Now, Now, what I want you to see is what happens next appears to be something good. But I think it's deceptive. 
King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. So Rehoboam goes back to the people that have served with Solomon, the the elders, the the people that have been his advisors. And he says, what do you think we should do? How would you advise me to answer these people? And the elders say to him, if you will be kind to these people and please them and give them a favorable answer, they'll always be your servant. Here's what they realize. They say, listen, your dad was hard on these people, taking taxes from them, making them do the hard labor. He built amazing places. He did amazing things. The infrastructure in our place is great. You don't have to continue that. You need to stay exactly where we are. Give them what they want. Relax a little bit. Let them have some freedom. Let them have some downtime. Rest on what we've done and then push forward a little later. Now, Rehoboam comes to these guys with that question. But his response tells us that he really didn't want that answer. You ever had somebody that asked a question that wasn't looking for an answer, but was looking for confirmation that what they were already thinking was the right answer? He goes to him and Rehoboam, it says, rejected the advice the elders gave him. And since he couldn't get them to agree with him, he goes and finds his buddies from back in the day. The young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. Now, let me just ask you a question. If you're all of Rehoboam's buddies, you're his school friends, you, you know, you play ball out in the yard, you're having a good time. What do you think is going to happen for you if you're one of his closest buddies when he gets to be king? It's a good life, right? And so when he comes to you and says to you, hey, what do you think we need to do here? You're going to do everything you can to make sure you're still in good with him, right? He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put upon us? And they say to him, the people have said, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. But this is what you need to say. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Now, I don't really know the measurements of those two things. The idea is, you thought it was bad under my dad. You ain't seen nothing yet. He says, my father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. And then he gives this last little bit. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And all of God's people said, ugh, right? So he takes that message back to the people. What do you think the people's response is? That's right. Jeroboam, look at you. You're back. Good to see you. Where have you been? Egypt, we're glad you're back. Guess what? King Jeroboam. Within two years of taking the throne, Rehoboam loses 85% of the kingdom. Civil war breaks out. North versus south. Israel versus what would be called Judah. Judah is where Rehoboam is with his close allies, those young guys that told him the decision to make. They're hanging out with him. Like, we don't need them anyways. They're the bad part. War breaks out. Stuff is happening all around. Other nations begin to hear what's happening. And there's this nation just across the river that's kind of big and powerful that hears that little old Israel's in trouble again. They come across, attack, attack 
loot the temple and the temple goods that Solomon and David have built up. Take them back to Egypt. And in the midst of it all, Rehoboam loses almost everything that his dad and granddad had built. 500 years of history before them. Three generations from that. The nation is split apart, never to be unified under a king again. The question is, how did he get there? When Jeroboam is sitting there with his head in his hands saying, how in the world did it come to this? How did we make it here? And if you've heard this story preached or you've looked at this story at all, sometimes you look at it and it's talked about, well, he didn't heed wise counsel. And there's definitely that aspect that he should have heeded the counsel of the elders. There's also this thing he should have understood servant leadership, that he should have understood that he was he was to be somebody that was to serve the people as a leader and not as somebody that is to lord over them, that he should have learned compassion and mercy, that he should have followed the laws of the Lord. But we have. Have an answer as to how he got here, given for us in Scripture. We have an answer to the question, how did I get here? And the interesting thing is, most of the times in our lives, the same answer that Rehoboam has is true of you and is true of me. That when we find ourselves in that head in our hands moment, we find ourselves in the how did we get here? We find ourselves in the what in the world happened to put me in this place? The answer is still the same. In fact, over in Second Chronicles, just a couple of chapters later, it tells us that Rehoboam did evil because he did not set his heart to seek. Now, before I reveal the rest of that, and before you jump over there to look at it, let me tell you what a lot of people think you ought to put in there. He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord's path. Or he didn't set his heart to seek the Lord's values. Or he didn't set his path to seek the Lord's wisdom. Or even he didn't set his path to seek the Lord's glory. And so he was going on his own wisdom and his own path with his own values for his own glory. But that's not what the scripture says. It's much simpler than that. It says he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Period. End of story. It doesn't say anything about wisdom or prayer or fasting or understanding. It just says that he did not seek the Lord. Here's a truth for you to understand and something for us to take with us through this week. A heart not deliberately set on seeking the Lord will settle somewhere else. And we're not told, and it's not important, what Rehoboam's heart was set on. It doesn't tell us that. It just says that he did not set his heart on seeking the Lord. 
Now you say, what does it mean to set his heart on seeking the Lord? Well, you know what it means to set your heart on something. Like I've got my mind on something. I've got my heart on something. It means those things that you sacrifice for, that you think about, that you dwell on, that you look for. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a career path. Maybe it's a job out there in the future. Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's children and what they're going to be and what they're going to become. But it's that thing in your life that becomes encompassing that you begin to think about, you begin to dwell on, you begin to worry about, you begin to focus on, and you set your heart on seeking that. The truth is, most of the time, when we find ourselves in one of those head in our hands kind of moments, if we look back down the path, we realize that it's because we weren't seeking the Lord We were seeking something else. And let's be honest. Most of us in this room have let our hearts settle somewhere else. One of my favorite quotes of all time comes from C.S. Lewis. And he talks about how we fool ourselves into thinking that we're going after the good things, but the Lord has something greater in mind. And he says this, he says, It seemed that the Lord our God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Many of us in our lives... Settle on things that are of major, major settling instead of the Lord. We settle for pleasure. We send our life to find pleasure through entertainment or sex or food. Whatever makes us feel good, we, we go after that. It's, maybe it's the way we look or what we Put into our bodies. And sometimes it's not necessarily eating a lot of food. Sometimes it's depriving ourselves of food so that we look great. We settle for power, for success, for money, for achievement, for us or for our kids, for our family. We settle for love, romance, or place in our families above the Lord. We settle for self. We think that what we are and who we are would be better served than seeking the Lord. So here's my question to you. What are you seeking? A few years ago, AOL. Y'all remember AOL? Remember? They sent all those CDs out. You got 400 a week, you know, try our service. How many of you had an AOL account at one time or another? Yeah, that was my, our first one, right? Our first internet account was AOL. A few years ago, AOL decided that they would do a public service and they made public the searches of 650,000 of their clients. Everything they had searched for on AOL. Now, some of you are going, that is a really bad idea. But they protected it. They didn't say it was Lyle Larson's search history. They said it was customer ID number 562348. But here was the problem. 
a local newspaper decided they wanted to find if they could figure out who someone was by their searches. And so without any information except what had searched for on the net, they were able to identify within a few days about 20 of the people exactly. Someone had searched for a 1978 Chevrolet transmission rebuild and through records they were able to discover those that had had to rebuild a transmission. And then they were able to search for places that had been searched, for places that were given directions. They were able to look through the search history and figure out who they were by what they were seeking. And the truth is, it's not AOL conspiracy that makes us realize that. Scripture teaches us all along that we become what we seek. So what are you seeking? Rehoboam ended up in one of those head-in-his-hands kind of moments because he decided not to set his heart on seeking the Lord. What about you? You can tell about what you're seeking by asking some very basic questions. What disappoints you? What do you complain about the most? What do you sacrifice for? What keeps you up at night or wakes you up in the middle of the night? Where is your sanctuary? Where do you go when difficulty comes? What gets you fired up angry? What do you daydream about? If the answers to those questions are similar things, then you might need to ask the question, is that what I'm seeking? This past week, Susan and I were at the the Southern Baptist Convention. And before the convention, they always have a pastor's conference where they have just... One speaker after another. It's one of those things that I love to go to. I mean, one day you can hear uh, eight sermons in a row. Doesn't that sound like fun? And some of you are like, ooh, like one from you a week is plenty, all right? And the theme of this year's conference was Show Me Your Glory. And it comes from Exodus. And it's this fascinating passage of Scripture from a guy who set his heart on seeking the Lord. Because Moses, you remember Moses, right? Kind of a big deal in the Bible, right? Moses goes up on the mountain, and while he's up on the mountain getting the Word of God, the Law of God, the Ten Commandments, his people are down there. What are they doing? They're dancing in front of a cow. Moses comes down from the mountain, breaks the tablets, gets mad, says to his brother Aaron, what are you doing? Aaron says... I don't know, people threw all their gold into this thing and a cow jumped out. People are worshiping. Moses gets mad and he goes back up on the mountain and he gives them the tablets and he says to God, can you do it again? I kind of broke the last ones. And after all of that, God looks at Moses and he says, Moses, I'm going to send an angel before you. I'm going to prepare the way. Your people are going to the promised land. But I'm not going to go with you. Moses begins to plead for the people and plead for himself. And he basically says, God, if you don't go with us, there's no reason to go. There's no reason to be there. There's no reason to go into the promised land if you're not there. It's not the promised land if you're not there. Now, you realize God would have been there, but his manifest presence, what was actually with them would not have been. And so... God and Moses have this exchange. And God basically gets to the point in Exodus 33 where he says to Moses, fine Moses, I'll go with you. 
and I'll give you whatever you want. Because of the way that you have prayed for these people, whatever you want, I'll give you. And Moses looks at God and he basically says, all I want is you. That's it. He had set his heart to seek the Lord. What are you seeking? Let's pray together.